Well, welcome everybody to Downtown Harbor Church. If it is your first time here, my name is John. I'm the lead pastor. Appreciate you guys coming on out, particularly the 9 a.m. service. So I just want to reiterate what she was saying about the baptism. She talked about telling your story, and I don't know if she mentioned this, but you're not actually going to have to tell your story. You're, we're going to help you write it, and then we'll have Christina or Adam read that because I picture somebody like now panicking that they're going to have to give a speech. That doesn't happen. It's just so don't worry. Don't worry about that. Um, but today we are continuing this series, and what we're doing over the next couple of weeks is we are leaning in to the wisdom of Paul. Paul was this guy that's very prominent in the New Testament. He was a Jewish leader who famously hated Christians. He could not stand them, drove them crazy. He thought their very existence was a blasphemy against God. And so he set out to end the movement by any means necessary. He would arrest Christians, throw them in jail. He would have them stoned. He would persecute them. He would even have them put to death if he could. Well, one day, he ran into the resurrected Jesus Christ, and his life changed forever. He became a Christian. Uh, he spent the last 30 years of his life traveling the Mediterranean Rim, planting churches, and he would go on to write over half of the New Testament. Well, one day, he finds himself locked in prison for preaching the gospel. And he doesn't know what's going to happen. He really doesn't know what the future has in store. He doesn't know if he'll be released. He doesn't know if he'll be executed. And so he famously starts writing these letters from jail. And we're looking at these letters. Each week, we're kind of taking a look at a unique piece of wisdom, if you will, that Paul felt burdened to share while his life hung in the balance. Last week, as we kicked off we took a look at the letter that he wrote to the Ephesian church. We learned that Ephesus was a wild city. I mean, wild, made Vegas look like Mayberry, all right? And so Paul, knowing this, knowing that these young Christians are living in this city, he writes them a letter. And really the one main point that he was trying to get across to them, and we looked at this last week, he said, listen, because you've been given a new life in Christ, you ought to live differently. And he kind of walked us through what it looks like to take off the old self, the old life, the old way of living, and to put on the new self in Christ. And we kind of landed on this idea that when you become a Christian, it's not so much that you just stop doing what you used to do before you knew Jesus, but now you also have to do something completely new. And if you missed that and you want to kind of hear more about that, head to our website or wherever you get your podcast. So today... Paul is going to be taking this similar idea of having a new life in Christ, and he's going to apply it to our relationships, particularly our marriages. If you're married in the room, this is a great one. If you're planning to get married, this is really good too. Um, and what he's planning to show these Ephesian Christians is that because you've been given a new life in Christ, your marriage must, right? Now there's a command there. Your marriage must look different. Because you are now a Christian, your marriage must reflect the love of Christ, not the values of the culture that you live in. Now remember, Paul is writing this from prison. His life is hanging in the balance, and the last thing you'd expect somebody in prison to be thinking about is how to make your marriage better, how to make your marriage more healthy. And yet he does. He felt so burdened about marriage that he decided to write this letter, which means that what he has to say is probably pretty important, so we should kind of tune in to hear what he has to say. 
So Paul opens up this conversation, Ephesians 5.1. It's literally the next sentence after we ended up last week when he said, get rid of all anger, bitterness, and rage. The next thing he says is, all right, well, follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children of God, and walk in the way of love. I love that. Walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us. So here he's kind of laying the foundation for the day, getting ready to build an argument for what love should look like in a marriage. And he says, I want you guys to walk in the way of love just as. These are the key words. These are sort of the key words for the entire day. What Paul is referring to here is actually something that Jesus said on the very last night of his life. Let me show you. He looked at his disciples, and he goes, boys, a new command I give you. Love one another. He turns love into a verb here. You know, we're so used to thinking about uh, love as a noun. It's something you fall into, not something that you do. But Jesus is commanding them to love one another. And then he tells them exactly how he wants them to love. Look at this. As I have loved you, you must love one another. That's a high standard for love. Just think for a moment, those of you who know Jesus, think about how Jesus loved us. We know that he humbled himself for us. Scripture says that he gave up the glory of heaven for us. He was mocked for us, ridiculed for us, crucified like a common criminal for us, and then he came back to life for us. And then Jesus looks at us and goes, okay, I want you now to love one another in the same manner that I have loved you. Wow. So Paul, now knowing this command, is going to show us exactly how to apply Jesus' command to love one another as he has loved us to our marriages. Because our spouses really are our closest one another. So he kind of begins, and he kind of looks at the women, and he goes, wives, all right, submit yourself to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. Ah, that old chestnut, right? Everybody's favorite verse in the Bible, right? This is just like a great memory verse. This is, come on, let's be honest here, right? We're all friends. This is one of those verses that makes your skin crawl, <laughs> right? Just, come on, right? This is one of those, like when you read this one, you're like, ah, nah. Like, this, is, this could be one of the verses that made you walk away from the church. You, you know, you grew up in a place where you saw how this was handled, and you're like, I'm out. I can't. This is one of those verses that every time you kind of hear it and pulled apart, and you're just like, you kind of question your faith. So look at Christianity, and you go, really? I, I, don't, I don't know. I think we're missing the mark here. My hope, though, is that after we're done today, that we will truly see how beautiful this actually is. That when we see the full context of where this is from, we will see how this transformed the world and can transform our marriages. So when Paul wrote this here, he didn't write in English, obviously. He wrote in Greek. And I want to show you what he actually wrote. And so what I did was I, I, I took what he wrote in Greek and I just translated it word for word just so you see exactly what Paul wrote from inside that prison. So here's what Paul actually wrote to wives. Wives, to your own husband, ask the Lord. Now, you're smart people. Where's submit? It's not there. Now, 
This isn't a case of somebody going in later on and adding this word submit to subjugate women. That's not what's going on here. This is a classic example of Greek grammar. In Greek, writers would often have this opening line, opening thought, opening argument, and then on all the preceding lines, they would infer the verb from the opening line. That's what's going on here. So the big question is, all right, where did Paul then infer this word submit from? Well, the very verse before it, verse 21. Take a look. Submit to one another. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. We get so laser-focused on that one verse of wives submitting to their husbands, most likely because it's always pulled out of context. We get so laser-focused on it that we miss this. This is what it's all about. If you hear nothing else that I say today, if you check out and you tune out and you miss it all, don't miss this. This is everything you need to know. This right here is revolutionary. This is the first time the world has ever heard anything like this in reference to a marriage. Paul is looking at these Ephesian Christians and he goes, boys, girls, now that you're Christians, your marriage must be characterized by mutual submission. That out of reverence for Christ and who he is and what he did for you, your marriage should be like a, like a submission competition, right? I'm going to leverage everything I have, everything I am for you, for your best interests. It's like I'm here for you and you're here for me, but I'm not here for you because you're here for me. I'm here for you because Christ was here for me when I needed him the most. This is an entirely new way to look at marriage. Then Paul turns his attention to the men because it's the men who really are the ones that need to hear this message the most. So Paul says, husbands, love your wives. Now we hear this and we think, well, of course. Right? I mean, that's of course. But it wasn't of course in the first century and it definitely wasn't of course in the Roman Empire. In the Roman Empire, of which these folks are a part of, men had no obligation, zero obligation to their wives. I, I know they're Christians, but according to the Roman Empire, they had no obligation. The law of the land in the Roman Empire was what was called patria potesta, the power of the father. And it's a complex law, but if you distill it down to its basics, men were in charge, women and children were nothing but possessions. And now Paul here is reaching all the way back into Jesus' command, and he's saying, men, love your wives. Wait for it. Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. He's saying, men, listen, I know you're coming out of a culture where you have all the power. I know this idea about women submitting to you is like standard operating procedure, but now that you're a Christian, all of that changes. Men, in your new life in Christ, you are to love your wife just as Christ loved you. You are to give yourself up for your wife just as Christ gave himself up for you. And these are Christians. They know exactly what Christ did for them. They know exactly how the story ended, which means men, 
you got to be ready to sacrifice your life for your wife. you got to be ready to sacrifice your everything for her. Now, in case these guys didn't understand the sort of theological imperative that Paul is giving them, he makes it a little bit more practical. He goes, all right, if you don't get that, think about it this way. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies, meaning you are to love, protect, and serve your wife as if she is you. Now, this is crazy talk for these folks. You have to understand, this is crazy. Now, this sounds reasonable to us. Why? Because we now live in a world that has been transformed by these very teachings. Our world has been transformed by Christians putting into practice what Paul has said here for the last 2,000 years. But this is brand new here. This is revolutionary stuff that Paul is writing to these folks from a prison cell. But he's not done. He says, men, he who loves his wife loves himself. Now that's interesting. But this is a beautiful picture of exactly what marriage is. Scripture says that when two people get married, they become one flesh. You've heard that in marriage ceremonies. Meaning there is no division anymore. There are no longer two people when you are married. Paul is like, she is you, you are her, and when you love her, you love yourself. And then Paul takes it a step too far. He says, after all, no one ever hated their own body. Clearly, Paul has never caught a glimpse of himself coming out of the shower, okay? <laughs> Just not a pretty sight. <laughs> anyway, if you distill down everything that Paul has said here, what he's telling his Ephesians of this, men, in your new life with Christ, if you want your marriage, your relationships to not just survive, but thrive and be godly, you got to put her best interests over yours. And ladies, I'm just telling you, you got to put his best interests over yours. You have to submit to one another. You got to be willing to lay down everything for your spouse out of reverence for Christ. Now that you're a Christian, that's what your marriage is supposed to look like. Wow. So you hear this. You hear Paul is commanding. It's not a suggestion. It's a command. And maybe you're thinking, all right, Paul, what if I submit and they don't? I mean, I know it's supposed to be mutual, but like, wh like what if I live to serve and they just live to be served. Because we know that Paul is commanding us to submit, but we're so concerned that our spouse is not going to hold up their end of the bargain that we end up doing nothing. And when we think about submission, we think about it like it's a nuclear launch. Like we both got keys, and we got to turn the keys at the same time. We got to like both submit at the same time. And if we don't turn those keys at the same time, if we don't lay our lives down at the same time, then I'm not doing it. We got to do it together at the same time end up doing nothing. Listen, if you're a Christian, I'm just going to tell you, you have to submit first. Don't wait for your spouse to submit with you. This is on you. And I'll tell you why. Because when you were dead in sin, Christ submitted himself for you, and he did something for you regardless of whether you would ever respond to what he did for you.
That's why we are commanded to love one another just as Christ loved you. But let's not dismiss your concerns too quickly. I mean, because if, if you don't think your spouse will mutually submit with you, chances are you're dealing with kind of a trust issue. You know, you're not positive that they're going to hold up their end of the bargain. And the reason we think that is because we've seen some things. Right? We've kind of experienced some things in our relationship. And based on what we've experienced with our spouse, we have now created a narrative about them. And that narrative doesn't inspire trust. It doesn't inspire confidence. So let me shift gears ever so slightly because Paul, in another letter, has something to say about trust inside of a marriage. Now, if you've ever been to a wedding before, you have heard what Paul has said in this very famous letter. And before he gets to his lesson on trust, he reminds us about what love looks like in a marriage. And he says, love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud, meaning it's not about getting center stage. Love is not about, everybody look at me, right? I'm going to let you shine. That's what love says. I'm going to let you be the center of attention. I'm not going to rob you of that moment. I love this next one. It does not demand its own way, meaning I'm going to put your best interests over mine. I'm going to serve you rather than serving myself. This is that submission. He continues, love is not irritable, except when your spouse hasn't eaten in three hours, all right? And I love this. And it keeps no record of being wronged. Wouldn't our marriages be better if we just did this one? But let's be honest. We all keep scorecards, don't we? We all keep records of wrongs. We pretend like we don't, but we do, right? We all keep tabs and all the super annoying stuff our spouse does. So in my household, one of my chief offenses, I mean, there's only a few, but like one of my chief offenses, this thing that I always do, is I leave out the food scale. Here's a picture of the offending item. Um, I use it a lot, and so I just leave it out on the counter. Now, why am I measuring my food? Don't ask. It's a whole thing, okay? But I leave it on the counter, and it drives my wife crazy, okay? I'm just going to tell you this. If we ever get divorced, and I hope we don't, it's going to be because of this food scale. This is, this is a, okay. Now, whenever she reaches the breaking point of, of this food scale, and she finally calls me out on it, I, rather than being a normal functioning adult, I, rather than listening to the advice of Paul, pull out the old scorecard, right? The record of wrongs. And I remind her about the sandals that she leaves by the back door, to which she says, well, I use those sandals to take the dog out. Really? All three pair? <laughs> now, here's a Generally speaking, that is not received with laughs. It's not received well at all. And it was an unwise choice on my part to sort of, but Paul is like, you've got to stop doing that. Don't keep a record of wrongs. And then he says something amazing. He says, love always protects. Love always trusts. Love always hopes. Love always perseveres. And I'm going to stop on this because this is what I wanted to show you. Now, you look at this list and you say to yourself, all right, love always protects. Yeah, I could, I could see that. That makes sense. You know, I could always protect my wife or I could always protect my husband. Um, sure. Uh, love always hopes. Yeah, definitely. You know, I can always hope for the best. I can always hope that things will get better. Not a problem. I, that, that makes sense. Love always perseveres. Sure. That's the idea that 
within this marriage. There's going to be ups, downs. There's going to be struggles. But, but, but we can persevere through that. Fine, sure, that works. But uh, love always trusts? I, I mean, can we really do that? I mean, Paul, isn't that like a little bit naive? I mean, it's not even on me. It's more about what the other person is doing. Love always trusts. Now, what's so interesting about love always trusts, when Paul wrote this in Greek, he didn't write always trusts. What he actually wrote was something more like love always believes or love believes everything, which is even a higher standard than trust always. Which means that when it comes to your marriage, Paul would say, love defaults to trust. But there's an obstacle that every single one of us face in our marriage. And, 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 and this thing makes trust tricky. I want to talk about it, and I want to kind of help you guys work through it. So in every single relationship, there is this, I'll call it a gap, if you will. But there is a gap that exists between what we expect someone to do, what we've been led to believe that someone will do, right? What, what someone has promised that they will do. I'll be home at 6. Right? We're going we're to leave at 7.15, right? Um, I'll have dinner ready for you when you get here. I'll get the bills paid on time. I'll take the trash out. I'll put the food scale away, okay? In every single relationship, there is a gap between what we expect someone to do and what we actually experience, okay? We're going to call this the ideal world, and then this will be the real world, all right? And every single time you find yourself in this gap between what you expect and what you experience, you have a choice as to how to fill this gap. Now, it doesn't feel like a choice in the moment. It feels more like a reaction, but it's a choice. And so you can either choose to believe the best, to trust always, as Paul would say, to believe everything. That is, you know, I don't know why they were late. I don't, I, I don't, I don't know why dinner wasn't ready on time. I don't know why the food scale wasn't put away. But I'm sure there's a good reason. And after we have a conversation about it, I'm sure it will all make sense. So I'm going to listen to Paul's advice. I'm going to trust always. I'm going to believe the best about my spouse. Right? We could choose to believe the best. Or we could choose a different response. And again, it doesn't feel like a choice in the moment. It feels like a reaction, but there's a choice. We can choose to assume the worst. Did it again. She did it again. I knew. I knew this would happen. I should have expected it. So typical. This is so typical. This is par for the course. Every time there is a gap between what we expected, what we were promised, what we were led to believe, and what we actually experienced, we have a choice. And Paul is saying, if you want a happy, successful, and godly marriage, I suggest, I'm not telling you, I just suggest you believe the best. That you believe all things. That you believe always. That you trust always. This doesn't mean we overlook wrongs. This doesn't mean that we stick our head in the sand. This doesn't mean we, have, like, we don't have hard conversations. This just means that our default response to our spouse is to believe the best. Because what's the alternative? Well, let's just talk about what happens when you always assume the worst. 
when you assume the worst, you give the devil a foothold. Paul talked about this last week with anger. He goes, when you hold on to anger, you will give the devil a foothold in your life. And assuming the worst is a symptom of anger. They are one and the same. And so when you choose to always assume the worst, let me tell you something. The devil pounces on that. Ooh, he loves when spouses assume the worst. Sinks his teeth into it. Stokes the flames. Spoon feeds you the lies. They don't respect you. Ooh, you like that. Here, have some more. After all you've done for them, God wants you to submit to that person? Surely he would not do that. And the next thing you know, you don't just assume the worst. You only believe the worst. Additionally, when you assume the worst, it leads to suspicion. And the thing about suspicion is that suspicion is a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you assume the worst time and time and time again, if you are always suspicious, let me tell you something. You will always and you will eventually find something. And the reason you will find something is because suspicion sets your spouse up to fail. When you are the spouse, when you're the other person living in a low-trust marriage, in a low-trust relationship, you walk on eggshells. When you know that someone is always watching you, always waiting for you to screw up, you're never at ease. You are so careful and controlled in all of your behaviors that you actually appear to be up to something, even when you're not. And you might even get to a place where you start thinking, you know, they treat me like I already do this thing. So maybe I should just do this thing already. Suspicion and lack of trust set a spouse up to fail. But when you believe the best, you set your spouse up for success. Isn't this true? Come on. Isn't it true that the people you want to let down the least are the ones who trust you the most? You don't believe me? Parents in the room. Your children trust you with their lives, with their hopes, with their dreams, with their everything. They look into your eyes and they believe the best about you. And because of that trust, you know that you would do whatever it takes to not break that trust. You know you would do whatever you could to live up to their expectations of you. And I'm just wondering what would happen if you offered your spouse that same kind of trust. I just think that they would do whatever they could to not let you down. Now, I'm not naive. I understand that your spouse is going to mess up. They are human. And like I've been saying, this doesn't mean that we don't have difficult conversations in our marriage. But as soon as that conversation is over, you get right back to believing the best. Why? Because love keeps no records of wrongs. Paul would say, choose trust. Submit to one another in Christ because of what he's done for you. And you will have a happy, healthy, and successful, and godly marriage. So, what's the practical? What do you do with a message like this? If it's your first time here at DHC, every single week, throw this word here on the screen. Just want to make sure you can leave on a Sunday and know exactly what to do with what you've heard. So this week I have two challenges for you based on what Paul has uh, spoken to us about. 
The first one is this. I would challenge you guys to race to the back of the line. That's kind of how I'm, I'm calling it. According to Paul, our marriages should be a submission competition. So what would it look like for you in your relationship to race to the back of the line so your spouse can go first? What would it look like to filter all of your decisions, all of your actions, all of your behaviors through the question, how does this serve my spouse's best interest? I mean, think about this. How would your life change if you knew your spouse was doing that for you? You'd be ecstatic. Now, let's just do it for each other. Secondly, I would challenge you just to test out trust. Maybe you are somebody who's been operating in a marriage or relationship that is low trust, let's call it. And you've seen some things, and you've experienced some things, and it has caused you to assume the worst about the person that you're with. Just for a week, not forever, just for a week, I would challenge you to test out trusting your spouse. That when expectations don't meet reality, choose trust. Choose to believe the best. And just see if you don't begin to experience a change in love. Let me pray for you. Dear Holy Father, I want to thank you that we have the opportunity to come together today to really talk about your best invention in this world, love. And Jesus, you gave up your life because you loved us. And now you are challenging, you are commanding every single one of us to love one another just as you have loved us, God. And for those of us in relationships, for those of us in marriages, our wife, our husband, is our closest one another. Help us today in these relationships. Give us fresh eyes to see where we may have been dropping the ball. Help us, God, to give of ourselves, to submit to our wives, to submit to our husbands, to submit to one another because of what you did on that cross for us. And I pray that in this process, our marriages would be more healthy. We'd have great success and happiness that you would bless us along the way. And we will give you all the gratitude and thanks. We ask all these things in Jesus' name.